So we started uh, looking at Romans 9 last week. We're going to spend uh, a few weeks just going through Romans 9 to 11, which, as I said last week, is, is basically a unit, and in an ideal world, we would do it all together in one sitting. But as that is too long, and uh, as none of us want to be here all night, we're breaking it down into chunks, and so we're getting into the second half of Romans chapter 9 this week. Uh, so just a, a reminder of what we've seen already. These chapters are all about Israel, uh, the Jews, the Old Testament covenant people of God. And they bring into focus a concern that has popped up at different points in the letter about the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul sees the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles in the church as being a really important issue to get right. It's possible that in the church at Rome there is actually some friction between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Um, there are historically plausible reasons why that would be the case. But he also wants to deal with the status of non-Christian Jews. What is, what is the status of Israel, given that the majority of Israelites have rejected their Messiah? How do they stand before God? And that is the question that is being asked asked and answered through these chapters. Now, part of the problem with breaking this down into chunks is that we're going to be looking at the same issues from different perspectives week after week. And another part of the problem is that Paul's view of the status of Israel especially is quite complicated and contains tensions within it which are not going to come out very clearly because we'll be looking at it chunk by chunk. So, the reason I say that now is because in these verses we're going to have reason to say some pretty harsh things about the status of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament who have now rejected their Messiah. And I'll be honest, it could sound brutal. And for us, as people who live in the 21st century, in a, in a, in a post-Holocaust world, it could actually sound quite deeply offensive. But we need to realise this is not Paul's final word on Israel, and when we get round to chapters 10 and 11, he's going to have a lot more to say, which is going to change the picture significantly. So, if this seems harsh towards Israel, um, come back over the following few weeks. Come back over the following few weeks anyway, because, you know, it'd be good to see you. But that is what is going to happen. So, so far, in particular, Paul has been asking and answering the question, has God been unfaithful to his promises to Israel? Has he failed to keep his word? And we saw um, in verse 6 of chapter 9 that Paul says, it is not as though God's word had failed. God's word has not failed, and we saw last week that Paul gave two reasons. Firstly, God has not broken his promise, because his promise never was that all Israel, all Jews, indiscriminately would be saved. That was never the promise. In fact, Paul picks out a couple of historical promises given to Israel which show that that wasn't the case. God has kept his promises. But then the second point we saw was that God shows mercy freely. God says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. God's mercy is absolutely free, given out of his pure sovereign goodness. That was our, our second point last week, and it's going to be our first point this week, because, you know, it's hard to come up with original headings uh, week after week. So that's going to be our first point this week, God's free mercy. But look, 
now we're looking at that free mercy from, if you like, the shadow side. And that shadow side is introduced by the figure of the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And we're going to see something of his significance. Now, these verses are difficult. I said last week, these chapters of the whole are difficult. These verses are difficult. They're difficult to understand. And once we've understood them, I'll be honest, they're difficult to swallow. But we need to get to grips with them. There's going to be a lot of stuff uh, taking us back into the Old Testament, so be prepared for that. We're going to be zipping around the Bible a little bit, um, and I hope by the end of the evening that everything will be vaguely clear. I've, I've set myself modest objectives. Right, now, God's free mercy in these passage, these verses. There are two images here. Paul goes to the Pharaoh of the Exodus in verses 17 and 18 and the potter with his clay in verses 19 to 23. And he uses those two images to illustrate the freedom of God's mercy. So we're going to look at each of them. But to get the point behind them, we need to see the Old Testament background to what Paul is saying. We need to get into our minds. As a rule, actually, can I just say, when Paul quotes a sentence of Scripture, it is almost always helpful to flip back into the story or the prophetic book it comes from and to say, what was that about? Because Paul is not just picking sentences out that happen to suit his purposes and sticking them into the book of Romans. He's playing off the stories that the Roman Christians already know and the prophecies that they already accept and so we need to see the context of those things if we're going to understand what Paul is doing. So, Pharaoh, verses 17 and 18. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. The Pharaoh of the Exodus is, if you like, the, the baddie par excellence of the Old Testament, possibly gets rivaled towards the end of the Old Testament by Nebuchadnezzar, but then Nebuchadnezzar has some sort of conversion experience um, after eating a lot of grass, whereas uh, the Pharaoh of the Exodus never does. So the Pharaoh of the Exodus is the bad guy of the Old Testament. And actually, it's quite often the case that when the Old Testament wants to evoke opposition to God, it goes back to Pharaoh. And it goes back to Egypt. And that is where we see opposition to God and opposition to God's people most clearly. In the Exodus story, of course, Pharaoh is described as hardening his heart. As Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I don't know who God is and I don't want to let the people go. They're building me lots of bricks and that's great. So, Pharaoh is described as hardening his heart. Also, in the story, God is described as hardening Pharaoh's heart. God confirms Pharaoh in his sinfulness. Um, contrary to what is often said, there is no clear order there. It is not clear that Pharaoh sets out to harden his heart and then God steps in and confirms that. It's just that the two things are said. Pharaoh is determined to sinfully resist God. God hardens Pharaoh in his determination because God is determined to do something with Pharaoh as well. So those two things are going on in the story in the Exodus and that's why Paul picks up um, 
the word hardening in verse 18. God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. He's got the Exodus story in mind. With me so far? Great. So, Pharaoh. Now, the result we know of Pharaoh's hardening, his own hardening and God's hardening of his heart, is that Pharaoh gets to the point where God judges him. And that judgment takes the form of ten plagues, plague after plague after plague, getting increasingly severe until the final plague, which results in the death of the firstborn of every Egyptian family. So, massive judgment. And the quote that Paul puts in his letter, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That quote is from Exodus 9.16, which is after six plagues. Right, sorry about all the detail about Exodus, but this is going to be relevant later, okay? So, after six plagues, God says through Moses this to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go so that they may worship me. Sorry, I'm reading from verse 13 of Exodus 9. Or, if you do not let them go, this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and against your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So what's going on in that little bit of story that Paul is alluding to and quoting here? Pharaoh has resisted God all the way through six terrible plagues, And God says to Pharaoh, I could have wiped you out by now. You could be gone and you would deserve it. But I have raised you up so that my glory can be displayed. So in other words, God says to Pharaoh after six plagues, Pharaoh, the only reason you are still here is that I am going to display my glory through overcoming you and judging you. So much for Pharaoh. We'll come back to how he fits into Romans in a minute. But just keep Pharaoh in your mind, okay? There's Pharaoh. The potter in verses 19 to 23. Paul imagines um, somebody objecting to everything he said. Why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? In other words, if it's all about God's free mercy, if it's not about what I've done, but it's about God's free mercy, how can God blame me for the fact that I don't go along with it? How can I be held accountable? And Paul's answer is um, fairly shocking. It's basically, shut up. Who are you, a human being, to answer back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? The answer is basically, God is God, and you are not. It is not okay for you to accuse God or to say to God, you have done something wrong here. 
He is God. But then Paul goes on to bring out this potter. Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Not a massively helpful translation. Uh, Sorry, hate to do this, but some, literally, some pottery for honourable use and some pottery for dishonourable use. Can you see there's a, there's a slight difference? Dishonourable use could just mean, hey, common use, you know, you put your takeaway in it and then throw it away. But it could also mean, and I think in this context it does mean, actually, like, bad stuff. Yeah? Make sense? Don't worry if it doesn't. The potter. Now, the potter... He pops up in Jeremiah chapter 18. I promise this is all going to start coming together any minute now. Wow, five minutes or so. Jeremiah chapter 18. Let me read a bit of it from the beginning. It's on page 778 if you want to follow it. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel. But the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands, so the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as it seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord? Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do for it. Okay, so here's the image in Jeremiah. The potter is there, sitting uh, at his wheel. I don't really know how potters do things, but like, there's a bit of this, isn't there, and a bit of um, sort of shaping of pots. Uh, and Jeremiah, Jeremiah is there, like that. Okay, yeah, okay. So Jeremiah is there doing the pot thing. That's, that's turning the wheel around, yeah. And uh, he's not there, actually, he's watching. The potter's doing this thing. And um, something goes wrong with the pot. The potter is shaping it, and it, it just it doesn't turn out the way he wants it. So what does he do? Well, it's still wet clay. So all he does is just squidge it back down and start again, make it into something else. It didn't work out like that. We'll make it into something else. And in Jeremiah, the Lord is using that image to say to Israel, look, I called you, Israel, to be a good and holy people, to follow me, to love me, and to be blessed in my land. But you have not turned out that way. And therefore, Israel, I, the Lord, the potter, have the right to squish you down and make something else out of you. Yeah? And if I do that, you, frankly, have no right to answer me back. So why does Paul pick up that image? Why the image of the potter? Well, he's saying here, God has the right, the sovereign right, to do with his people what he wills. And if his people turn out to be wicked, 
he has the right to just smash them together and start over again. Now, that is shocking. It's hard for us to hear, I think, because it says, actually, God is so far above us. We have no rights before him. We have no way to make him obligated to us. Any more than clay can make the potter obligated to it. But actually, it's more shocking if you are Israel reading the book of Romans. Remember, the question is, what has happened to God's faithfulness to Israel? He made promises to these people. Have they been broken because their Messiah has come and they haven't believed in him? The majority of Israel have not been saved. Does that mean that God's promises have been broken? And this passage is devastating because Paul places non-Christian Israel in the place of the Pharaoh of the Exodus. Remember? The baddie of the Old Testament. And he says... The flip side of the fact that God is free to show mercy is that he is not obliged to show mercy to a people who have continually hardened themselves against him. He does not have to do it. Any more than he had to keep giving Pharaoh chance after chance after chance. Any more than he is obliged to bear with a crooked pot that he has made. He does not have to show mercy. If, Paul, if, if God wants to use sinful Pharaoh or the rebellious nation of Judah at the time of Jeremiah or unbelieving Jews at the time of Paul to show his power and wrath, as he describes it in this passage, he is free to do so and nobody can argue with him because those people are sinful and rebellious. He is free to have mercy but he is not obliged to have mercy. If that sounds harsh, I want you to see that this is just the other side of what we call grace. If God shows his favour to some who do not deserve it, if it is done purely out of the overflow of his love, and not because there is anything in them that warrants it, not because it's at all to do with our works, that is the way God works, then there is no way that anybody can turn around to him and say, you are obliged to show mercy to that person or that person or me. No way at all. It is free grace when God shows mercy. And therefore when he does not show mercy, nobody can answer back to him. And in the context of this chapter, Paul is saying most of all, you, unbelieving Israel, who have rejected your Messiah, cannot say to God, how dare you deal with us like this? Over many generations, you have hardened yourselves against God. Just read the Old Testament. Moses says, you've been a stiff-necked people since I knew you. And they don't get any better after Exodus. 
So Paul is saying, God is not obliged to you. If he is gracious, it is grace. Free, undeserved. And therefore, when it is withheld, there is nothing that we can say to the potter. Um, One of my favourite dead people is um, a Swiss-German theologian called Karl Barth. And uh, he writes hefty books of this um, order of magnitude. Um, You'll be alarmed to know that this is volume 4.1. But listen, he says, if it is to take place, that is, if we are to be reconciled to God, if it is to take place, it must be from God, in the freedom of God and not of man, in the freedom of the grace of God, to which we have no claim, which would necessarily judge and condemn us because we have sinned against it and always will sin against it because we have shown ourselves unworthy of it. Atonement is free grace. Even the fact that God wills to be our God and to act and speak with us as such is free grace on God's side and something entirely undeserved on ours. We have only to think. God for us men. God in his majesty. God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. God in all the fullness of his divine being. God in his holiness, power, wisdom, eternity and glory. God who is completely self-sufficient who does not need a fellow in order to be loved or a companion in order to be complete. God for us men. If that is what he is, if that is what he is as the true and real and living and only God, if he is this God, the God for us, the covenant God, then he is so, not as limited and conditioned by our freedom, but in the exalted freedom of his grace. Okay, you didn't think that was as cool as I did. Bart is saying, and he could just be paraphrasing Paul, God is free to show mercy. And there is a flip side to that. But that is what grace is. I wonder if we can cope with this God. I do mean cope with this God. There are lots of uh, efforts made to try to make this make sense to us. To try to say, how can it be that God is so free and yet he holds us responsible for our actions? How can it be that we can even have any choices if God is this sovereign and this big above us? I don't find any of them particularly convincing. And I don't think the problem for us is that we don't understand how this works, although we don't. I think the problem for us is, this God is too big for us. If I have to have a God, I would quite like to have a God where I can get some sort of claim over on him, where I can somehow oblige him to do what I want. I don't want a God who is free to show mercy because he's too big for me. 
That was my first point. My second point is really quick, so don't worry about it. God is free to show mercy. Second point, God has a great plan. When Paul looks at the majority of Israel who have rejected Christ, he actually sees God at work. Like Pharaoh, they have been preserved when God could have wiped them out. Sinful though they are, hardened against God though they are, they have been kept in existence. Israel has been kept in existence. Why? Well, Paul says it is so that God can show his wrath and power. He could have wiped them out a long time ago. But Paul says he wanted to show his wrath and power and by contrast, the glory of his saving grace. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? In other words, the plan always was that these sinful people would be kept in place so that God could show by his judgment on them his wrath and power against sin, but also his glorious grace towards those who are saved. And Paul proves that that was always the plan by going back into the Old Testament. Hosea shows that people were always being welcomed in when they had been excluded. And Paul uses that to show that the Gentiles are now coming in, along with Jews, to the kingdom of God. He uses Isaiah to show that it was always the case that only a tiny remnant of Israel would be saved. And we're going to see more of that in coming weeks. God has been patient with Israel for his own glory and for our good so that we would see what it means to be saved by a gracious God. I just want to wrap up because I'm running way over time. And also this is really heavy, and I'm aware of that. I want to wrap up by saying, the emphasis in this passage is on God's freedom and sovereignty. His ability to choose, his right to choose where he will show his grace and where he will not show his grace. But we need to be clear that this is not a game for God. Sometimes when we uh, get in to talk about God's sovereignty, um, you get the idea that all of our life down here is kind of like puppet theatre and, and God is kind of do, 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 and we're like and uh, that's going to sound really good on the recording um, and Paul is clear that that is not the case remember right back at the beginning of chapter 9 we read this I speak the truth in Christ says Paul I am not lying my conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race. This isn't a game for Paul. Whilst he recognises God's sovereign control and God's plan, he also feels the deep pain of seeing people walk away from God. He believes that that is a real choice that they have made, and he suffers for it. Or... Uh, 
later on, just check Luke 19, 41. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem and weeps over it, because he wants to save it, but they will not be saved. Or ultimately, just consider, God the Father gives up his son to death to achieve salvation. It's not a game for God. God is not messing around with us. When he shows grace, it is real. He relates to us. He loves us. The only response for us personally is to throw ourselves on the grace of this God who is free to show mercy and has promised to show mercy in Jesus Christ. When Paul is talking about Israel, it can seem a bit distant from us. But we need to recognise that Israel's story is our story. If Israel has gone through generations and generations of hardening their heart against God, that is because Israel shows exactly what all human beings are like. All of us have hardened ourselves against God. All of us deserve his judgment. And if any of us are saved, it is his mercy. Mercy which he promises to give to us as we trust in Christ. Let's just take a moment of silence. Let's try and process some of that. I'm going to hang around at the end um, to try to field any complicated questions that that might have raised. But what we're going to do now is what I think Paul would want us to do, to turn away from just thinking about God to worshipping the God who is gracious to us.